So, hello everybody. Um, my name's uh, Manny Raja, and um, I'm currently the, the current chairman at the Manchester, uh, the Guhiloka Retreat Centre. Um, yeah, <laughs> chairman of Manchester Buddhist Centre. Not yet, no, 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 no. <laughs> not ever. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I got involved in the movement in uh, 1999 and I was ordained in 2003 and I spent a fair bit of time here in Manchester before I went to Guiloka. Um, and I was just going to say a little bit about that in my talk anyway, so I'll just crack on I think. So, um, so I'll just give you a little introduction of what I'm going to talk about tonight. So I'll just say a little bit about uh, my life and what led me to live at Guiloka and what I'm actually doing there now a little bit. And then uh, I shall go through the five aspects of the spiritual life which have been uh, recently released in the Initiation into a New Life papers by Sabuti. And then we're going to dip into a bit of Yogacara, which I hope is okay with everyone. Um, so I'll give you a little short introduction to one of the sutras from Yogacara. Um, focus in a little bit on one of the Yogacara teachers, which is Vasubandhu. And one of his teachings is about the self, uh, called the Manas, and it's got um, four aspects. I'm going to kind of explore that a little bit and explore it along the lines of the um, five aspects of the spiritual life, and then conclude. So we'll see, see how we go on with that. Okay. So yeah, it's great to be back in Manchester. Uh, I do love this shrine room. You know, I've got a lot of fond memories of this shrine room. And um, yeah, sitting, sitting at the back all those years ago on my first uh, introduction to Buddhism course. And um, well, it was just like entering a new realm, you know. It's just uh, people telling you things that uh, you'd not heard before. And this whole new experience of life opening up in front of your eyes. Um, and that, you know, that happened to me in the shrine room and in this, in this centre, so I'm very fond of Manchester. Um, another, another highlight for me was seeing Moxie Jyoti, uh, who used to be a chairman of the Manchester Buddhist Centre. Um, he came back from his ordination retreat from Gihiloka, and I can remember him standing there in his, in his blue robes. I'd never seen an order member wearing robes before. I can remember just being transfixed by this being from, a, from another world, just radiating love and compassion and talking about this wonderful time that he'd had up in, in the mountains of Spain. I guess that kind of planted a seed. And doing my first sevenfold puja as well, I remember doing that in here. And just feeling like the whole universe was kind of watching me, making sure I didn't get the uh, refuges and precepts wrong, because something terrible would happen if I said it in the wrong order or said something wrong. And uh, yeah, another, another thing I remember is that the Gujrakuta community that's upstairs um, used to meditate here every morning. And sometimes it was just so beautiful, kind of meditating in the middle of the city with the stillness. Um, just, you know, stillness and quiet of Manchester in the morning. It was really lovely. And then they started building uh, next door. So used to, every morning at quarter past seven, the uh, uh, jackhammer used to start up and we used to have to meditate through that. So anyway, I first got involved here and I quickly moved um, upstairs to Gujrakuta. I'm assuming it's still there, is it, Gujrakuta? Yeah, not yeah. quite the same. It's no? a community at 
right, okay. So yeah, so I moved upstairs to Gudrakuta, joined the centre team, threw myself into, into life here in Manchester. And um, yeah, it kind of really showed me uh, just a way to live a, a meaningful life really, one that I really appreciate and one that really inspires me as well to live that life in Gihiloka. Um, it's, uh, it was a, a, a fantastic life up there in Gudrakuta. So, as with all things, everything changes. And, um, well, it came uh, time for me to move on from Manchester. And um, I won't tell you about the process that, that, that I went through to come to that decision. But within a couple of weeks of making that decision, I was invited to go and support uh, an ordination retreat in Guhiloka. So previously I'd been ordained in 2003 and this invitation came through to go and support a retreat. So I kind of had this thought, well, maybe Guhiloka might be the next place to go. It might be what I want to do with my life. But I was kind of slightly worried that maybe I'd had such a good time out there when I'd been there in 2003 because I was getting ordained. So there's this you know, great big thing going on. And uh, maybe that was why I enjoyed it. So thought, you know, this would be an opportunity to go back and um, see what it was really like, sort of. Um, so yes, I went there and um, I can remember sitting in the shrine room on the first couple of days and just realising that um, my mind was actually in complete overdrive, actually. I'd spent quite a few years being quite busy working in, a, in uh, various places and doing, doing things, getting involved in things. And I sat in the shrine room and it was as if I wanted to come into the present moment and all that happened was whoosh, off I went, off into my, my mind, thinking about the past and the future uh, and all the stuff that had been troubling me. And suddenly I kind of felt quite daunted that I was going to be on this four-month retreat where every time I went to meditate, all that happened was I'd just kind of be in this storm of suffering, actually. So it started off quite painfully. But um, practicing the Dharma, being what it is, things, uh, things did change. And a couple of months into the retreat, I can remember sitting under a, a shady grove. The sun had started to do its summer thing in, uh, in Gihiloka, where you run from tree to tree to, to keep in the shade so that you don't get burnt. And um, we sat in this shady grove studying the Bodhicharyavatara. And for the first time in my life, I felt happy. I realised I felt happy. Um, I hadn't quite worked out what it meant to be happy before. I, I'd sort of thought I'd been happy. But there was just this intense simplicity to the present moment, just sharing the Dharma with my brothers, sitting under a shady tree in a retreat centre. It was you know, intensely satisfying experience. So in that moment, kind of the decision was made to go to Gialoka and live there. Uh, and that's what I've been doing ever since, well, since after I arrived in 2010 in Gialoka. So most of you know Gialoka is in a, in a mountain valley. Those of you that are going out there soon, don't worry, I'm not going to tell you anything you, you don't, you, uh, don't want to hear. Um, so yeah, it's in a mountain valley. Uh, 10 kilometres inland from the Mediterranean, and it's stunning and it's beautiful. The facilities are very basic, um, very basic. 
um, but they're adequate, yeah? They're really adequate. They're really adequate. They're just what you need to immerse yourself in a simple life, uh, to really immerse yourself in the Dharma life. And one of the delights of living at Giyaloka is seeing the people come to Giyaloka, whether it's for, a, I'll do a little plug now for our retreats, whether it's just for a, you know, a week solitary, or whether it's for a few weeks on a working retreat, whether it's coming on one of our autumn retreats or whether it's the, the four-month ordination retreat. Everybody that comes, you just see them change before your very eyes. Just, uh, it's just an intensely magical place. So yeah, as you can imagine, living there and working there is very different to um, being on retreat there. And... Um, Yes, just saying into the camera there. Yeah, some days uh, it's really tough at Kyoloka. You know, some days, you know, I just think, good grief, this is tough. Uh, stuck up a mountain with five or six other blokes and we're living together, sharing the shrine room, sharing the kitchen, sharing the work. Uh, we spend all day together and then we spend the evenings together as well. If you want to go out socialising, you go out with the people that you're spending your life with. Uh, it's very challenging, very challenging. Um, but very rewarding as well. I mean, it's a fantastic life. Simplicity, sharing, sharing the Dharma life with my brothers. Um, I think one of the things about my life at Giyaloka is I haven't got another option. I haven't um, really got a plan B. Um, kind of really, uh, really there, really. So, you know, got to make it work. That's, that's the real challenge of it, that um, kind of made this commitment to be there. And... Um, go through what needs to be needs to be gone through so anyway that's a bit about me and what I'm doing at Giyaloka um, so um, yes so now let's go on with a little bit, a bit of Dharma um, so most of you will know that Banti has been busy Sangharachita has been busy uh, writing some papers um, possibly you know his last collection of works before he dies and just clarifying what Sri Ratna is all about. So he started out with his first paper called What is the Western Buddhist Order? Um, and then a few years back now, he wrote with Sabuti an initiation into a new life, um, which basically explores how ordination fits into the spiritual life as we practice it as disciples of Sangharakshita. And so in the paper, um, there's, a, there's a section where uh, Sabuti goes into the uh, spiritual life as being lived with, within these five aspects. So these five aspects are integration, positive emotion, spiritual death, spiritual rebirth, and the fifth one, which is called uh, receptivity. So I'm just going to go into each one of those. Uh, just to remind you what Subhuti said, because I'm sure you've all, all read it, and a little bit of um, my own take on what, what they're getting at. So, <coughs> I think what integration for me is about is um, just kind of seeing that the spiritual life, for me at least, is one that is lived with a lot of virya, energy. Yeah? So we need to put energy into our um, spiritual life. And um, I think if you put energy into something that's not very together, it'll just 
fall apart really. You're not going to get very far. Um, so for me, the idea of integration is about building up a kind of a strength um, so that when one applies energy to it, it doesn't fall apart, it doesn't disintegrate. So it's really about setting myself up uh, so that I can lead the spiritual life. And one of the things that you need to do, or one of the things that I need to do, um, is learn to include all the parts of me that doesn't want anything to do with this Dharma life. Yeah. Um, I think when I first started out practicing the Dharma, they weren't particularly vocal. Um, it was quite easy to just throw myself into leading a Buddhist life and everybody else kind of, you know, got dragged along behind me. Um, but then eventually there comes a point when those parts of you that don't want to lead the spiritual life start making a bit more of a noise. Um, so yeah, integration is, for me, is about including the whole of who I am uh, into this uh, spiritual life. So I've got various wants, and I've got various needs, and I've got various desires. And they need to be included. You know, it's no good saying, um, you know, oh, I've got a need for intimacy and affection. Uh, and going, oh, don't be silly, go away, leave me alone, I'm leading the Dharma life. You know, it's, it's not going to work that way, you know. And these parts of you that perhaps um, have previously been somewhat excuse me, ignored, need to, be, need to be brought in, need to be brought into awareness. And they need to be responded to with kindness as well and taken very seriously. <coughs> so yeah, that's, that's kind of some of the flavour of integration for me. I think one of the ways that that's easily practised is through um, concentration. Yeah? So we sit down in the shrine room and we set an intention to bring our mind onto the breath or to develop loving-kindness or to reflect on one aspect of the Dharma. And we soon find out that it might start off okay, but uh, after a while, um, things are moving on. So with the practice of concentration, we can start to get an idea of the different sides of ourselves that just aren't into being here in the present moment. Sometimes I can speak quite idealistically and sometimes, it, you know, some, I always think some people must have the impression that I'm some great yogi or meditator or dharma practitioner. I kind of just give you a flavour of what goes on in my mind. For me, concentra uh, concentration is about trying to be in the same country, yeah? So, you know, I'm sitting in the shrine room in Spain and my mind is in, is in Manchester, you know, or London or something I've seen on the news on the BBC. So, you know, so kind of being in the same country is a good start. You know, the same country, the same time zone, you know. Um, <coughs> so, yeah, it's kind of bringing yourself into the present moment. So, yeah, the second one is positive emotion. So, um, well, as I sort of hinted at, when we're, when we're bringing ourselves together, um, we come up against obstacles or we come up against these things that we haven't quite included uh, in our life, spiritual lives previously. And I think the idea of positive emotion is to respond creatively, to respond with loving kindness to the obstacles that appear in our lives, in our spiritual lives. And that can be kind of internally or externally. 
So responding positively to ourselves and responding positively to others. And setting up skillful intentions to do that as well. It's, um, you know, it's good to practice what it is you're going to do, what you're going to come up against later in life. So let's say you're going to do the metabarbany and you're going to practice. Say, I'm just going to count to two before I get angry uh, with this person. You know, you can set up an intention, but you practice it in the metabarbana, kind of putting a gap between you and that person. Um, so that when you actually meet them, you don't just kick off, you know, you've been practicing that, uh, that gap. So yeah, setting up um, skillful intentions. I can see myself swaying here, so it's probably going to be a really funny video. I've just <laughs> noticed that I'm swaying. <laughs> I think I'm on a boat or something. <laughs> So anyway, I don't know whether that will stop, I'll try. <laughs> um, yeah, and also kind of taking a risk and responding differently. So we may have an, a habitual way of responding to, to difficult situations or difficult people. So yeah, positive emotion is about taking a risk and responding differently. And also I think, uh, I think one of the keys to this is about developing faith. Um, yeah, faith. A faith that positive consequences will flow from our positive actions. It's all very well doing these good things, these nice ethical things, and responding nicely and creatively. Um, but if you don't actually have much faith that it's going to produce anything or it's going to be a benefit to your spiritual life, you're not really going to want to do it. So, you know, it's about developing faith that these positive consequences will have positive actions. And sometimes it's not immediately apparent, is it? You can, uh, it seems like you might be doing all this good stuff, but actually you're just suffering and having a really horrible time. Um, consequences will happen from positive actions. They may not be immediate, they may not be today, next week, next year. Maybe, if you believe in this stuff, it might be the next lifetime. That positive, uh, positive actions have positive consequences. So it's developing faith in that. <clears throat> so um, the third aspect is spiritual death and um, yeah so kind of here we're entering into the realm of the Dharma uh, the Dharma truth things as they really are so we're kind of starting to apply conditionality and uh, bringing a Dharmic perspective into our spiritual lives there's a whole talk in itself there isn't there but um, basically what we're trying to do there in spiritual death is to lo uh, loosen our illusion that there is this fixed, single centre of the universe uh, that is the most important thing in the universe. In fact, it's so important, that's why the universe came into being, and you are the centre of it. Uh, so it's about working away from, from thinking that. Um, maybe you don't think of yourselves in that way, but think that way sometimes. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, kind of loosening, loosening our illusion of the, of the ego. And one of the ways to do that is to just, is to just learn to let go, yeah, letting go, renunciation, giving things up. Um, you know, we talk about spiritual death all the time, but um, what have you given up? What have you renounced? What have you let go of? What have you moved on from? So really, spiritual death is about letting go of things, loosening the grip, uh, giving things up so that you can move on from from the old way of doing things. If the old way of doing things was okay, 
you wouldn't be leading the spiritual life, would you? You'd be happy and everything would be sorted. So you need to move on, and to move on, you need to let go. So kind of there's a real sense of renunciation there. <clears throat> so the fourth aspect is um, spiritual rebirth. So if we've been doing all this Dharma practice and we've had, a, had some little insight uh, into the illusion of the ego uh, or some other insight, um, then a new being emerges, a new you carries on with the spiritual life. Um, I think that's the key really, that whatever you do, whatever you practice, you are going to become something other than you were. Um, you know, there's no, um, there's kind of no switching off, you know, we can't just turn the lights off and that's the end of it and not become something. We're always becoming something. Um, we're always becoming other than we are. So that is a way of, you know, spiritual rebirth is about kind of grabbing the reins of your life, if you like, and saying, well, what is it that I want to become? Because I am going to become something. Um, yeah. So again, the realm of spiritual rebirth is kind of the realm of imagination, aligning ourselves um, with what we want to become, aligning ourselves with the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, um, perhaps. And uh, Sabuti talks a lot about this flow that exists uh, in conditionality, in reality, in the way things are, that we really need to be taking advantage of. Uh, because that flow is quite a natural flow. You know, if we take advantage of that flow, then we do progress in the spiritual life. We do move towards enlightenment. Uh, we kind of use the karmic uh, workings of conditionality, if you like, to become more like a Buddha. So, um, yeah, there's, there's two ways of looking at these five aspects. Um, I think traditionally, when they were first uh, explored in, uh, by Sangharachita, it was more as if they were like a path of regular steps. Um, I think in, in, the, in the commentary it talks about being vertical. So it's almost as if you work through each stage. And then the last stage is called uh, the stage of no more effort. So we make an effort all the way through our spiritual lives uh, towards liberation, towards freedom, towards enlightenment. And then finally, there's this stage of no more effort, um, which, is, uh, which is what we're... So rather than going into that, um, what I'm going to talk about is that, well, when a Buddha reaches that point, talking of making effort doesn't make sense anymore. So it's as if the Buddha doesn't have to make any more effort, but it doesn't stop there. There's kind of no stopping there. Um, so what emerges from that is what, what's also called spontaneous compassionate activity. So that's another way of looking at that fifth stage. Uh, this kind of creative, ever creative unfoldment uh, that occurs. So you don't get to enlightenment and the lights go out and game over, you've, you've won. Um, you get to enlightenment and it continues to unfold, but it's a different level of conditionality. Um, one where there is no centre of the universe, fixed centre of the universe. So it's just spontaneous, compassionate, kind activity. Okay.
However, uh, another way of looking at it uh, is to also look at it, um, these five stages, um, horizontally. And so the fifth stage is, is not called uh, no more F, it's called receptivity. And um, it talks about how these five stages, as it were, move on together. So in a way, we don't kind of get integrating, integration sorted and then move on to positive emotion. They're all working together. And there's this kind of spiritual energy that needs to go behind all of them. But there's also receptivity that also needs to be included in each stage. So I'll just talk a little bit about receptivity, what that might mean in these four, uh, five stages. So one of them is, is just kind of really being open to reality, uh, open to what it is that's emerging from your spiritual life. So you're putting in all this effort, um, you're aligning your forces uh, in line with the karmic forces in the universe and you're trying to become a Buddha. Um, there's, a there's a response to that. And I think what's really important that is that we need to connect with that response. We need to be open to that response. We need to be receptive to the consequences of our actions. And when we do have our insights, um, again, I think this realm is talking about appreciation. Um, so kind of having a real sense of appreciation for what is coming up for us in our spiritual lives. Really appreciate and treasure um, any insights that we have. And receptivity is also, you know, being able to respond uh, to what emerges. And really cherishing the Dharma, you know, uh, really cherishing the truth uh, as you find it. Really learning to embrace the Dharma. So I think receptivity can be um, a counterbalance to, uh, to all this effort, uh, perhaps as I see it anyway, this effort that's required in the spiritual life. Okay, so I'm um, going to slightly move on from these five aspects. <clears throat> so one of the things that I've seen that kind of can, um, that I've seen make sense to me, as it were, that can keep me engaged in the spiritual life, uh, to keep going. Um, well, it's having, having a positive vision of reality, really. Um, a positive response to the truth of things. Now, I don't mean here that uh, it means everything's nice and fluffy, uh, and I don't mean wishful thinking, um, but a positive vision of what we see the Dharma as, how we respond to the Dharma. You know, we, we, need, to be, um, we need to be looking for the Dharma in our experience. Um, so we kind of need to want to look for the Dharma, you know. Uh, we need to have an, an interest in finding out what the Dharma is and what it really means, uh, what it really means for us. And sometimes um, the Dharma just seems to uh, manifest in our experience, doesn't it? We've all had a moment of insight and clarity. We've all responded to the Dharma in some positive way. I'm assuming that's why you're all here. You're all here in a Buddhist shrine room because you've all had a response to the Dharma. Um, I'm just going to share with you one of my little um, 
little insightful moments. Um, happened a long time ago. Would have been upstairs in the centre team office around the little round table with my, with my fellow Mitras as we worked our way through Mitra study. And it's fair to say there was an occasional competitive uh, argument going on. Uh, someone trying to be clever, you know, kind of coming up with a clever answer. And um, one, of, uh, one, one of the clever, clever ones in my group, he was very, very clever. He always, always knew what was, what was going on. Uh, he, he told us about um, a story of Hui Ning. Forgive my um, terrible pronunciation if that's not how you say Hui Ning, but that's what I'm going to stick with. Um, so he was the sixth, or is, was the sixth patriarch in Zen Buddhism. And it's a very short story, but it just talks about um, how on the temple roof there's this flag that's flapping in the wind. And down in the courtyard, there's a couple of monks, uh, sort of imagining them as mitras arguing over the Dharma. And one of them saying, look, look, um, the flag is moving. And then, of course, the clever one says, ah, it's not the flag that's moving, it's the wind that's moving. And the two of them kind of get into this uh, argument, going backwards and forth, saying, no, it's the wind, it's the flag. But they could come to no agreement. And then finally, uh, Hui Ning turns up and says, it is neither the wind nor the flag that is moving. It is your mind that is moving. And in the rough and tumble of my Mitra study group, uh, a kind of a penny dropped. <laughs> that, uh, well, that I kind of hadn't really been seeing my experience that way before. I'd kind of... I kind of thought that what was going on out there in the world was going on out there in the world, that it didn't, wasn't anything to do with my, my mind or my consciousness. Uh, it was all really existent out there and I was separate from it. And just in that moment, it's like all of this that's happening, all of you, all of me, it's all just going on in my mind. Um, and then I try to make sense of that, and then it all gets lost in the next argument. But I just I do remember that uh, waning uh, reading. Um, yeah, so there's something about that experience which, um, for me, kind of is is present for me when I know I'm onto something. Yeah. So there's two qualities. One one is that it's kind of transcendent. So it's kind of beyond what is my normal experience. You know, normally I experience the world in a certain way and then when an insight arises, it's, it's from a different part of my experience. Where does that come from? Mm. But also it's, it's immediate, you know, it's an experience I can resonate with immediately in the present moment. And often it feels very positive uh, and it kind of spurs me on to want to practice the Dharma. So, you know, really treasure your little insights and follow them through, follow the threads. And so I think that, and along with a few other things, was kind of what got me interested in, um, see the, the link there, Yogacara Buddhism. So that's been something that's been a, a thread in my life uh, for quite some time now. Uh, and yeah, so the resonance was that in my misunderstanding of what I'd heard people say about Yogacara, <coughs> was that what Yogacara Buddhism was saying uh, was that there was something 
and we often talk about uh, mind only. So it's as if there was this positive measure, uh, message that there is, there is really something. Um, and I'd found it difficult to resonate with this idea that I'd heard people talking about, about emptiness. Uh, and, um, you know, apparently, you know, apparently you've got to be careful with teachings on emptiness because it can lead to nihilism. Well, in me, it very, it very, di- it very much did. It kind of just wasn't resonating. It's like um, this idea that there's nothing uh, at the bottom of, of, these, of, of existence. That isn't what it's saying, of course. I know that's not what it's saying, but that was, that was what my mind was hearing. So I was resonating with a positive uh, message of the Dharma. Um, kind of what resonates now is, um, as, I, as I explore Yogacara, is not that at all, actually. Um, it's much more to do with um, the transformation that can come through exploring the Dharma. So Yogacara talks a lot about the mind and consciousness and the workings of the mind. And there's something kind of therapeutic about actually looking at the workings of your mind and seeing how consciousness works, and kind of grappling with this vision of reality. So, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, I'm just going to share with you a little bit about what I've uh, learned about Yogacara Buddhism, particularly the Sangdhya Nirmochana Sutra. Now, I'm not a scholar. I definitely am not a scholar. Um, this is just stuff I've picked up, so nobody quote me on the internet that Mani Raja says this is what Yogacara really, really is in its absolute essence. I'm just kind of giving you a flavour. Um, and there's a lot of bright people out there who could... Uh, give you a much better teaching on it than me. I'd be very happy to send anyone some links uh, if you wanted to email me to some sources and text and videos and all that stuff. <coughs> but Yogacara um, and Majamaka are two strands of Indian Buddhism, Indian Mahayana Buddhism. Um, and the primary text of Yogacara Buddhism is a text called the Sangdhya Niyamochana Sutra. And in it, there's a fair few essentials um, of Yogacara Buddhism. So I'm just going to run through a few of those for you. So one of them is this teaching on the third turning of the wheel of the Dharma. Um, So the first turning of the wheel of the Dharma is described in the Pali Canon. And it's the Buddha, he attains enlightenment. He wants to pass on the Dharma and he doesn't know who to pass it on to. Uh, His teachers have died. And then it occurs to him to go and find his five friends that he'd previously practiced the spiritual life with. And he finds them and he teaches them that there are two extremes in the spiritual life to be avoided. Um, These extremes are, you know, engaging in the pleasures of the spiritual life, in, in the pleasures of life. Uh, but also kind of a life of complete denial, uh, that the middle way was between the two. Um, and that the middle way is the Noble Eightfold Path uh, and the Four Noble Truths. Um, but however, uh, despite uh, this very clear teaching of the Buddha, uh, eventually, as the days and the weeks and the years roll by, um, Things crystallise and humans uh, 
put their their uh, their interpretations on what it is that's being said. So it said that the, the original teaching was open to interpretation, um, and it said that uh, some people would see the Buddha's teaching on dharmas as though uh, things really existed, that you can break down conditionality down into little separate dharmas, and that these things really existed over a period of time. Um, I'm not saying that that's what everybody that follows the, the Buddha thought, but it kind of was argued that maybe the Abhidharma teachings kind of overemphasized the dharmas as fixed things that really exist, and this needed to be uh, overcome. So there was the second turning of the wheel of the Dharma, um, and this is said to be the skillful means of the Buddha. Um, so he said, well, actually, these dharmas, uh, they may exist, but actually they're empty. Yeah? So things exist, but they're empty. Um, and again, given time and given human beings, um, what happened was the, the charge of nihilism crept in and that the last word of there is, the, there are these dharmas, but they're empty, just they're empty, kind of got stuck with. And um, the charge of nihilism crept into Buddhism, or it could be interpreted that way. So the third turning of the wheel of the Dharma um, is to say that all these previous teachings were open to interpretation and this third turning of the wheel of the Dharma is the true Dharma. It's not open to interpretation. Um, I think that's very interesting. Uh, you know, they kind of want this stamp of approval. And of course it doesn't stop there. You've got the fourth turning of the wheel of the Dharma that comes after this third turning. Um, which uh, is the uh, Buddha nature teachings, or sometimes the Vajrayana teachings. <clears throat> so also in the sutra, you've got the um, three natures. Uh, so yes, so I'll just talk a little bit about these three natures. So it talks about reality. Uh, it talks about the way things are as having three natures. Um, and these three natures are the imagined nature, the other dependent nature, and the perfected nature. Yeah. So reality always remains reality. Yeah. Whatever we do with reality, it's always going to be reality. And whatever we do with the truth, it's always going to be true. So these three natures kind of reflect reality, as it were, as experienced by us as manifest in the universe. So the first one is the imagined nature. Uh, this is how we imagine things to be. Yeah? Um, we imagine there's an out there. We imagine there's an in here. We imagine there are subjects and there are objects really existing in the universe. It's the realm of duality. Yeah? Um, it's like a magic show this, all of this that's going on. It's like a magic show and we take it seriously. We believe in it. We go along with it. We imagine it to be real when in fact all we're doing is imagining the unreal. I think it's important just to remind ourselves or certainly remind me that it's a good job that we do see the world that way actually. Uh, else we wouldn't all be here. You know, if we didn't uh, see things as a threat, uh, we wouldn't 
try and defend ourselves if we didn't remember where food was, particular trees grew particular fruits and imagine that that fruit was going to keep us alive. We wouldn't bother doing it if we just saw it as all our own minds or something. We wouldn't, we wouldn't respond uh, in the way that we need to respond as human beings. Yeah? We need to take care of ourselves. We need to uh, live with families and friends and look after ourselves. So it's a good job that we see, see the world in this way. But at some point, living the life in the magic show, uh, we get a glimpse or an inkling that uh, maybe things uh, are different. <clears throat> and that takes us on to the second nature, which is the other, other dependent nature. So the magic show is still there, uh, but it's just the way things are. You know, it's just this one conditionality, this one reality, this dependent arising. It's just the way things are. And things will unfold as they do in this other dependent nature. Uh, they just work themselves out. It's kind of orderly uh, manifestation of reality, conditionality, pratichat samapada, the other dependent nature. And then the third nature is the perfected nature. So um, basically, um, it's kind of seeing and in experiencing reality devoid of self and other. Yeah? So uh, it's reality, but not a non-dual, non, it's a non-dual reality. So you'll, you'll you hear non-duality a lot. And what that means is, um, well, it's, it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's not subject and it's not object, yeah? Um, so it's seeing the magic show, as it were. The magic show is still going on, yeah? We're in this perfected nature. The magic show is still going on. But we see it for what it is, yeah? We see it for what it is. It's not that, as it were, we, we break free of this illusion of self and suddenly the world looks blue or something or we kind of land in some different realm of reality. It's the same reality. It's all going to look the same. But we don't respond to it with greed, hatred and delusion. <clears throat> a lot simpler way, Banti talks about that, is really about the reactive mind and the creative mind. So there is conditionality and there's these two unfoldings, if you like, in reality. There's the reactive way where we just go round and round in circles responding the same old way to our greed, hatred and delusion. And then there's responding creatively, this kind of uh, unfolding, uh, un creative unfolding. So another aspect of the Sangdhi Nimochana Sutra um, is the teaching on consciousness only. Um, and there's this incredibly uh, amazing chapter, chapter 8. Um, basically it's Maitreya Buddha. Uh, Bodhisattva Maitreya having a, having a conversation with the Buddha. It's kind of like this intense meditation interview, and they're you know kind of really going into depth about the the insights of uh, vipassana and how to practice practice samatha meditation. And um, you know, most of the time I don't understand the questions, let alone what the answers are that's being given. But there's one particular part in the section where. Uh, Maitreya asked the Buddha, he says, 
Is the object of meditation different or not different from the mind? And the Buddha answers, it is not different because it is simply only cognition. And again, I think that that is another little uh, teaching like this, the flag and the wind and the, and, uh, and the mind. That there is these objects of our mind are our mind. They're not separate from our mind. They are our mind. And so uh, from all of that kind of emerges the, the, the mind-only schools. So there's just one other bit of the Sangdhini Mocha I'll just talk about. Um, and that's the fifth chapter which talks about um, the structure of consciousness. Don't mind, I'm not going to talk about the structure of consciousness. Um, and it introduces the idea of seven consciousnesses. Uh, some of you may have heard of the eight consciousnesses, but in, in this text it talks about the seven consciousnesses. And it introduces the idea of the Alia Vijnana, which some of you will have heard of. So this is the storehouse consciousness where seeds of actions uh, are stored. Um, so this is where it makes its first, uh, first appearance. And then the other six consciousnesses are eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. So these are the six uh, consciousness, consciousnesses that we talk about. And it also talks about the secrets of the mind and thought and consciousness. So there's this whole exploration of consciousness going on. So that's, that's kind of some of the teachings of the Sangdhya Niyamotana Sutra. So let's speed forward a couple of hundred years. Uh, and we land into the world of Vasu Bandhu. Um, <coughs> So Yogacara has been unfolding and being practiced by various teachers and schools uh, alongside um, Majamaka uh, Buddhism as well. And they have a, a long tradition of arguing with each other. If any of you ever study the Bodhicari Avatara, there's a section in the back where the two schools are just going head to head with each other about the nature of, uh, nature of reality. <coughs> Um, yes, so Vazabandhu was um, previously studied the Hinayana, so-called Hinayana, uh, but he was converted to Yogacara by his brother, a Sangha. And from what I can understand, uh, at least from some of the stuff that I've read, that it might be said that a Sangha's version of Yogacara had somewhat strayed uh, into this idea of idealism. So the view that there is only mind. Yeah. So that if there was one thing in the universe, if the universe was one reality, that one reality would be mind. Maybe that is how it is, I don't know, but you know that's Vazubandhu didn't seem to agree with that. Um <coughs> Vazubandhu kind of went on a quest of going back to the Buddha's teachings. So he applied the Buddha's teachings to uh, two centuries of Yogacara Buddhism. And he came up with um, various works. And one of his famous works is uh, the 30 verses, uh, which, he go, which I don't have time to go into. <laughs> um, but in a nutshell, um, what he's saying is that once again, all that we experience is our own mind, yeah? that we're caught 
in our own experience. That this world that we experience is just our own conceptualising. It's just our own imagination. And it's just a function of consciousness. That's just what consciousness is, that it creates appearances of out there and in here. And because we are attached to the things that appear in our consciousness, or we fear them, uh, or because uh, we take it too seriously, we, we suffer. But really what Vasubandhu is saying is it's just consciousness. All is just consciousness. So, in that work, he introduces the idea of uh, manas. Yeah? Uh, and so I'm just going to have a little look at that with you. <clears throat> so we're looking at the manas, which is the self-consciousness, yes? Yeah? So a defiled mind consciousness. Um, excuse me, one second. So we have this consciousness going on. I've introduced the idea of the Alia Vignana, which is this storehouse consciousness. And we have these six consciousnesses going on top. And sandwiched in between, as it were, looking at both ends of that is the manas. Yeah? And Banti talks about it in Know Your Mind as being the seat of the ego identity. It receives and interprets the impressions that it gets from out there and creates a really existing external world. And interestingly, it looks inward at what's going on and creates a self. So this manas has four characteristics. So as it goes through consciousness um, being itself, it has these four characteristics of self-delusion, self-love, self-view and self-conceit. So this self-delusion that it has is that despite all the evidence before it, so despite the fact that it's faced with the truth of the Dharma, um, it maintains that it's separate. So it really likes to keep up the show. It likes to keep itself deluded. It likes to keep itself going. So in order to keep going, it needs this uh, characteristic of maintaining uh, a belief in something despite all its contradictory evidence. And also there's this self-love, this kind of preoccupied attachment to being me, if you like. Uh, I rather like being me, and uh, that comes from somewhere. Um, and it's, a, it's an over-attachment to being, to being oneself, an intoxication. And it can, you know, uh, well, it obviously gets in the way of seeing things as they really are. And also there's self-view, so again that's about saying that I'm fixed, I'm unchangeable, um, that I really exist and that I have this essential nature that really exists. And finally self-conceit, um, it's saying look at me, you know, aren't I great, aren't I the centre of the universe, aren't I important, yeah? And I'm probably worth a little bit more than you are as well, I'm a little bit more important than you are. So this self-conceit that uh, keeps the self going. So what do we do about this state of affairs? Yeah? So I've got the root of this, of our consciousness. We've got this consciousness called manas. It's got these four aspects. Um, 
So well, what it's doing yeah, is it's um, creating a world which some of you may have heard of, of the grasper and grasp. So you've got this central manus at the centre of your consciousness. It's reinforcing itself with these four modes of operating. Um, and the spiritual journey, I think, begins when we see that there's something wrong with this mechanism that's going on at the heart of our consciousness. Yeah? So um, we begin the spiritual life with the process of self-transformation. Yeah? So uh, we want to see, we want to come to a different relationship with ourself. Yeah? So um, these selves that are going on inside us, uh, we can't just pluck it out and throw it away. Yeah? This is what we are, this is who we are. We're in the process of self-transformation, we're in the business of leading the spiritual life. And I'm going to suggest that there's four things that we could do. So rather than, um, as it were, trying to get rid of the self, we're transforming the self. So these four things are self-development, self-surrender, self-overcoming and self-discovery. And I'll just speak a little bit about these and then we'll be done for the evening. So they very much tie in with the five aspects of the spiritual life. So the first one is self-development. And I think it's really important that we see Bhante's uh, path as a path of self-development. We really are putting ourselves into conditions to develop ourselves, to grow, to become happy, healthy human beings. And that Tree Ratna really offers uh, the context in which to do that to really develop ourselves. So that kind of bit of contradiction there, we're kind of overcoming the self, but actually we need to develop the self before we can overcome it. So it's kind of developing this positive, happy, healthy human being. And another thing that I think that uh, we, can, we can explore that with is through just deepening levels of commitment um, to the Buddhist ideal, to the three jewels. I think that very much ties in with uh, integration, just getting ourselves developing and growing, becoming happy, healthy human beings. So there's self-surrender. Um, so yeah, just kind of practicing stepping out the way, just uh, stepping out the way and, and allowing a, a love uh, for others to come through. So instead of this preoccupation with loving ourselves is that we surrender ourselves and that love is still there, that love for others is still there. Feeling compassion for our friends rather than being concerned with our own self, uh, just really responding positively as it were to, to others. And then there's self-overcoming. So again, uh, there's this self as it were, uh, at the heart of our being, and it's an obstacle, it gets in the way, it's why we suffer. Um, so we really need to overcome uh, the gravity of this obstacle that's in our, in our experience. It really needs to be, to be overcome, we really need to see that it's an illusion. And we can just do that by chipping away, yeah? Chipping away, bit by bit, getting to know ourselves, responding with kindness, responding with compassion, responding with awareness and practicing the Dharma.
and eventually, as it were, tying in with spiritual death, we can let go of that sense of who we were. And then there's self-discovery. So we're doing all this practice and actually something emerges uh, from that in our experience. And perhaps, you know, like when I was studying under the, under the shady grove and felt that intense happiness, that there was in that moment, you know, a certain discovery of who I really am, of what I really am. Finding out who we really are, becoming our true nature. <clears throat> okay. That would tie in with spiritual rebirth, nice and tidily. And then we've got back to the business of uh, self-transformation. So this continuous process that requires energy in the spiritual life, but also requires some receptivity as well.